I've already given it away in the prayer, uh, but if you notice in your bulletin insert, uh, in just a few weeks as we transition back to the fall, we are about to begin a new study. Uh, Lord willing, we will begin uh, to walk through the Gospel of Luke this fall, uh, and that means that we are close to the end of our study through the letters to the churches in Revelation. Today is number five of seven. Uh, We are reading today in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 to the church in Sardis. You can find that on page 1029 if you picked up a Bible on the way in. The church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3. Today we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. Now before uh, we read God's holy word, let us go to him again in prayer, seeking his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord and gracious God, We thank you for this, your living word, which you have given to us, and we pray that by your Spirit, you would give us grace to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, so that we may hold fast to the word of life as it is proclaimed to us. Help us to hear and see and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, we pray in his name, amen. Here now... uh, God's word to us as we find it in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. It is in the book of Proverbs, beginning of the 22nd chapter, where we learn that a good name is more desirable than great riches. A good name is more desirable than great riches. Now, of course, you already know that, because somewhere along your travels and your sojourns, you have gone to school with someone or you work with someone. And that someone leads a semi-charmed existence because of the family name they happen to carry around with them. We know that sometimes uh, good names can open a door for us. Imagine your life as a New Englander if your last name happened to be Kraft or Forbes or Cabot. Imagine your life as a New Yorker by the name of Rockefeller. Those are the kinds of names that open doors. Now, the most prominent building on the campus of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary is the Kerr Building. (laughs) 
And during my seminary days, it seemed like at least every fourth person I met wanted to know, one, was I the great-great-grandson of the building's namesake, and two, if I was, does that mean that I got a break on my tuition? <laughs> Sadly, the answer to both of those questions was no. But uh, we know something of the value of a good name. And over the last 20 years or so, psychologists have been studying the effects of our names uh, and how it changes the course in life that we might take and the doors that are open for us. And the phenomenon is known as something called uh, nominal, uh, nominative rather, nominative determinism. Nominative determinism is the theory that we might be unintentionally biased toward or against certain names. It goes a little bit further, and it says that perhaps people with certain names are influenced to take certain life paths because of the name that they have been given. And together with uh, this theory are all those delightful little coincidences, uh, like the fact that the world's fastest human is a Jamaican sprinter by the name of Usain Bolt. Perhaps you've considered that. Uh, there is the meteorologist from North Carolina. His name is Larry Sprinkle. Uh, there is the veterinarian who works on the North Shore, Dr. Scott Pett, with two Ts. There's the former president of St. John's College in Oxford. Uh, he is a man by the name of Sir Michael Scholar. Uh, and then there is the program director for the Smithsonian Museum's Division of Birds. She is an ornithologist named Carla Dove. Now, you can look all of those up if you want to. I've checked them out. They, uh, they're true, and you can probably think of some other examples later on, uh, but it's an interesting thought experiment to think about the way that our names uh, might direct our path through life. Doors that are opened or expectations that are shaped, and we would say, yes, a, a good name perhaps is more desirable than great riches. Well, today in our passage, Jesus is warning the church of the possibility that we could actually be relying on a name that is actually less than worthless. Relying on a name without substance. A reputation without reality. In this letter, uh, Jesus is drawing attention to the danger of an empty reputation and the blessing of a worthy name. That's the central tension for the church in Sardis. It's the primary question that they need to answer. And it is, is the church content merely to have a good name in the world and in the community? Or do we long to have a name that is worthy of Jesus? In Sardis, it seems there were members in both categories. The vast majority, it seems, was resting on their good reputation. Actually, in verse 1, the word uh, for reputation is uh, name. It says, literally, I know your works. You have a name that lives. And so they were resting on this good name that they had, this name that made them uh, look like they were alive and vibrant. And their greatest joy, like the Pharisees, was to practice their righteousness before others to be seen by men. And their greatest reward was to have all people speak well of them. They lived to have a good name that made them look like they were alive. And then there is the minority, what Scripture knows as the faithful remnant. And they looked not for the praise of men, but for the smile of Christ. They lived by a righteousness that had been heard. 
righteousness they had received and a righteousness they kept unstained from the world. And Jesus says that it is these ones whose names he will never deny. We're going to be looking today at names and what is in a name and and what the Lord has to say about the name that we bear in the church. And the question here for you is, what is worth more? Would you rather have a name that is praised by men or a name that is worthy of Jesus? Now, as we look at our passage, the first thing that we learn is that there are some churches that have a name that they don't deserve. This is the teaching of verse 1. And in the context of verse 1, Jesus' words are startling. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's not what we expect. We have heard Jesus several times over in each of these letters to each of these churches, and he always begins, even if it's just a small thing, but he always begins with at least something that is commendable, something that is worthy of praise. And that seems to be the pattern that Jesus would follow up those words, I know your works, with something good. Thyatira, I know your works. I know your love and your faith. I know your service and your patient endurance. Ephesus, I know your works. I know that you cannot bear with those who teach evil. I know that you are patiently enduring for my namesake. The Lord comes to his church gently and kindly, and he commends them, and he says, I know your works, but to Sardis the message is different. I know your works, says Jesus. I know those things that you do to gain a reputation, Those things you do to make a good name for yourself of being vibrant and alive. Maybe the Lord has in mind their industriousness or their social action. Maybe the Lord would say, I know those soup kitchens that you volunteer at on Wednesday nights. I know that two-mile stretch of highway that your church has adopted. And one Saturday a month, all the youth group goes out and they're cleaning up the litter. I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know your community outreach program, Salt and Light for Sardis, and and I know how you draw in local artisans and you have musical presentations, and I know all the things that you're doing. I know your works, Jesus might say. I know the way that every other pastor and every other church in Asia looks to Sardis with longing in their eyes. Oh, if we could get our church to labor for the Lord the way the Sardinians do. The Sardians, sorry. If we could get our church uh, to engage with the community the way the Sardians do, if we could simply uh, be better or do more, and the Lord says, I know your works, and I know the name that your works have made for you, but he says, I also know the reality behind those works. And the reality is that even though you may look alive from the outside, there is no pulse under the surface. I know your works that you have a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. And it's almost as though Jesus, the great physician of the soul, makes a phone call, and Sardis picks up on the other end of the line. And Jesus says, I'm just calling to let you know that your test results are in, and I'd like you to come in so that we can talk about them. When can you be here? Sardis looks at her watch and It's already 4 o'clock. I still have to pick up the kids. Is it okay if I come in tomorrow morning? And the reply comes back, we'd better not wait. 
Can you get here soon? Can you be here right away? This letter, this message, this is serious. This is the x-ray of someone who looks outwardly healthy, but inwardly is full of death and disease and poison. And they are just a breath away from the entire system collapsing, and that's the way it is in some churches. Some churches have a name that they do not deserve. And Jesus says, I know your works and your reputation for being alive, but the reality is that you are dead. Now, that would lead us to ask the question, well, how can we tell the difference? If there are some churches that look very much alive from the outside, how do we know the difference between ones that are alive and ones that are looking like they're alive but actually just are dead? And Jesus speaks so much about works in this passage, we're tempted to think, well, maybe that's the answer. Maybe works are the deciding factor. Maybe the church just wasn't doing enough. Maybe the answer in Sardis was to get busier. Sardis was uh, throwing layups while the Lord wanted a slam dunk. And maybe if Sardis would do more or do better, maybe they could resuscitate themselves. Maybe that's what the Lord is telling them. And unfortunately, that's the way some Christians think about Jesus. We get the impression that Jesus is some, uh, some drill instructor. He's some personal trainer, and he stands over us with a whistle and a checklist of all our performance rubrics. And we're standing there, and we're panting, and we feel like we're about to faint, but Jesus is simply uh, shouting at us, get up, keep going, you're never going to make it at that pace. What are you doing? You're dogging it. Come on, come on. And some people think that the Lord works that way. What Jesus wants is more busyness and more industry. And yes, the, the scriptures speak of our Christian lives as as a race and as a striving for the end point and as a pressing forward, but it never speaks of a sprint. It always speaks about a long-distance run. And besides, the problem in Sardis was not a lack of busyness. Sardis had works. They had so many works, they had a reputation for their works. What does Jesus say? He says, I have found your works incomplete in the sight of my God. He says, you've got a reputation, and all the people who look at you think, well, these are really great, and the church is really alive, but the Lord says, before the Lord, they don't measure up. He says, I have found your works incomplete. And you know what that means. It means that they're empty. Incomplete. This is a language that you would use of a seashell that you find somewhere on a beach. And it's iridescent. And it's beautiful, and it's empty, and the life is gone. In Sardis, their works and their reputation are marvelously empty. And that's why Jesus' prescription for Sardis is not to do more. His prescription is wake up and hold fast. Wake up, he says. Wake up and remember. Take a look at verse 3. Remember, then, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Keep what you have received. Keep what you have heard. Repent of having turned away from the message that was proclaimed to you at first. Repent of having ever added or desired to add uh, the, the shell of your own good works to the substance of the gospel that you've received. He's telling them, hold fast to the message of Jesus Christ 
and him crucified and resurrected because that is where life is found. Not in dead, empty works that you can tire yourself out on. Folks, this is the difference between religious hypocrisy and real Christianity. Religious hypocrisy always says, I will do more to make a name for myself. True Christianity says, I will trust in the name of my Savior Jesus, who has redeemed me to himself. And that's the answer to false and empty reputations, to remember what you've received and heard and to keep it and to repent. Repent of anything that takes the place of of finding your reputation and righteousness anywhere other than in Jesus Christ. At the beginning of his book, uh, titled Christless Christianity, Michael Horton asks a provocative question. He says, what would things look like if Satan took over a city? A whole city, under the the sway and and the power of the evil one. How would you answer that? No, probably. We would imagine a city filled with deception, and greed, and malice, and hatred, and debauchery, and violence on every street corner. Maybe that's what it would look like if if Satan took over a city, if he was given free reign somewhere. More than 60 years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he offered an answer to that question. He suggested that if Satan took over his own city in Philadelphia, he said all the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. He said, if Satan took over Philadelphia, there would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. What would it look like if Satan were to take over in a city or a church? Most likely, it'd look like pretty full churches and pretty busy churches with no substance It would look like Sardis. So we learn there are some churches that have a name they don't deserve. Secondly, we see that true Christians have a name that is worthy of Jesus. And this is the teaching of verse 4. Take a look. He says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. This people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, how many Christians do you know would take that language and apply it to themselves voluntarily? If it had not been written in Scripture, how many Christians do you know, real believers, would say, oh, I'm worthy to walk with Jesus in white. I'm worthy. I doubt that many of us would. Isn't that the basis of our profession? Isn't that why we're here? Isn't it that we come together to profess and to remember and to be reminded that Jesus Christ lived perfectly and died sacrificially and was raised powerfully because you and I are not worthy? Isn't that where the gospel begins? Who is worthy? Who has a garment that is unstained by sin and the flesh? Not me. Not you. Even all our righteous acts are as filthy rags, and yet Jesus says, here are some who are worthy. So what does Jesus mean when he says that these followers of his, these saints of his are worthy? Maybe we could ask it 
in another way. What does it mean to say that uh, you should have garments that are unsoiled? It's best to understand this in two ways. The first is really the point that we've already looked at. And that is that unsoiled garments come from trusting Jesus' righteousness, not the reputation of our own good works. The ones who were worthy in Sardis were those who lived and breathed and believed in their hearts, in their core of their being, the answer to Heidelberg Catechism question number one. What is your only hope in life or death? And the answer, at least the beginning of the answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. That's where worthiness is found. And clinging to the righteousness of Christ finding unsoiled garments that come from him rather than from our own reputation. But there's another way to understand that. What does it mean to have unsoiled garments? What does it mean to be worthy of walking with Jesus? Well, unsoiled garments belong to those who do not compromise with the world in order to secure their blessing now. If you have been with us, especially over the last two studies, you'll say, okay, I can tune out because this sounds awfully familiar. And the truth is that the entire section of these seven letters in some form or another are dealing with the temptation to compromise with the world. All seven of these churches could be categorized according to those that are already compromised, those that are being tempted to compromise, and those that have not compromised. This is the theme that runs throughout all of them. It was the temptation to mix a little something else in with faith in Jesus in order to be accepted by the world or in order to find security in the world. Now, the great difference is that in most of the cities that we have examined so far, four so far, the temptation to compromise came in the form of idolatrous worship and immoral behavior. There was a Jezebel, there was a Balaam, there were the Nicolaitans, there were the works that that Jesus hates, and they're being tempted to compromise with these things. And there's not a hint of that here in Sardis. Sardis, it seems, according to uh, pagan idolatry and and immoral behavior, Sardis is squeaky clean. But it doesn't mean that they are free from compromise. When Jesus wrote, I'm sorry, when John wrote, when Jesus spoke these words, and John wrote uh, Revelation, there was in Sardis a very large, very prominent, very affluent Jewish community in Sardis, an enormous Jewish community. In fact, uh, it is in Sardis that archaeologists have uncovered uh, what they believe to be the most uh, impressive ancient synagogue ever found outside of Jerusalem. It's huge. You can look it up on Wikipedia later, simply look for Sardian Synagogue, and it will be there, Uh, and it's enormous. And it had uh, had Roman arches, and it had uh, floors with mosaics, and it had columns made of marble, and it it was prominent, and it was influential in the city. And that's a reminder and evidence that there were really two ways to compromise in Sardis. You could compromise the pagan way, Or you could compromise the Jewish way. You could take a little bit of Jesus and add a little bit of Caesar and a little bit of debauchery. And that would give you the the position in the community that you were looking for. Or you could stay close to the synagogue and you could take a little bit of 
righteousness of Christ and a little bit of righteousness by the works of the law. A little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Moses. And you could saddle on the burden of all 613 commands of the Old Testament, good works. And you could set yourself to doing those good works and you could pat yourself on the back and everybody else around you would say, they're doing a great job, aren't, you? aren't they? And you'd fly under the radar and you'd have security in the community. You see, the reality in Sardis is that compromising with the world and having a reputation for good works were the same thing. At least they could be the same thing. It was possible to be a nice, upstanding young Jewish boy or girl and to ignore that Jesus is the only way and his righteousness is the only one that counts. And you could add a little bit of something else on the side. But Jesus is saying the ones who are worthy to walk with him are those who hold fast to the garment of righteousness that he supplies. They remember his word. They keep his word. And they do not mix it with the stain of legalistic self-congratulation. And then there is the promise. You notice this promise. I want you to see that Jesus is not setting up some sort of a two-tier system of Christianity. He is not talking about, well, here are the worthy believers and here are the believers of honorable mention and maybe you'll just squeak by in the second category. What does he say? He says, the one who conquers, that is all of them, all who conquer by faith in Jesus' name, they too will be clothed in white in the same way that these worthy ones are. They will all walk with me. I will shepherd them around to and fro. They will follow me. They will be with me. The Lord says they will all have something better than a good reputation. They'll have their names inscribed forever with indelible ink in the register of life. The book of the Lamb, written from before the foundations of the world. A name that can never be erased, and never be destroyed, and never be blotted out. And Jesus is saying, those names of my, my worthy ones, those people, they will be truly alive. They won't just look alive from the outside, but they'll be alive with me. They'll be alive with the Father. They will walk with me, and they'll be sustained by me, and they will be acknowledged by me. Take a moment to let that set in. Verse 5, what does he say? He says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Have you ever wanted somebody to stand up on your behalf? Have you ever been in a position where it seemed like everyone else was against you, and you were alone, and if only somebody would stand and say, no, they're with me, they're okay, they're mine, they belong. Have you ever longed for that? Can you imagine what Jesus is saying here? Can you imagine that great day of the Lord? And the Ancient of Days takes his seat and the books of judgment are open, and all of creation is before him. And the judgment begins when the Father asks that question, Who is worthy? Who is the one who is coming from the tribulation as a conqueror? Who is worthy to stand in my presence without being consumed for eternity? Who is worthy? And just as you are beginning to fall to your knees and cry out that you are not worthy, not worthy of the least 
of God's mercy. All you deserve is his justice. All you deserve is his wrath and his displeasure. While you are dropping to your knees, the lamb takes his stand in your place. And he stands and he says, my father, this one is worthy. Could you imagine if you were to hear the conversation within the Trinity, the Father speaking to the Son, on what basis is this one worthy? Perhaps Jesus were to respond to the Father. He's worthy because he's mine. She is worthy because I have clothed her in my righteousness. They are worthy because I have written their names on the palms of my hand and the pages of my book. And the Lord will stand and confess that on the basis of His righteousness and His sacrifice and His resurrection, all of His children will walk in white and in purity and in holiness with Him forever. That's what it means to be worthy of Jesus. It is something we receive. It's a message that we have heard. It's a word that we keep. Now, I want to press home one more point. And from where we're coming, it might seem anticlimactic, but you need to know that this letter is not merely a diagnosis. A diagnosis is helpful. A diagnosis helps you to see who is alive and who is dead. And perhaps that diagnosis is working somewhere for you right now. I don't know. But this is more than a diagnosis. This is a summons. This is a summons to be one of Christ's worthy walking saints. The real beauty of this letter is that it proclaims hope for dead churches. It proclaims hope for dead church members. To those who are dead, Jesus says, wake up. He's calling. Wake up and remember and repent. Don't suffer in death any longer, but wake to new life. And we might say, if it were anybody else but Jesus who was speaking, that would be foolishness. It would be an insult. It would be mocking the dead. Because dead men can't hear. And dead men can't wake. And dead men can't remember. And dead men can't hold fast with fingers that are cold and lifeless and hearts that are hard. And if it was anybody else who was saying this, wake up, we would think that it's foolishness. And it's so important that it is Jesus who is making this call. Take a look in verse 1, the way that Jesus introduces himself. He says, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we know from chapter 1, this is a while ago, but we know that these seven stars are representative of the seven churches. We, we get that picture, but what about the seven spirits of God? This is strange language for us here. Don't let the language trip you up. We're reading a book where completeness is measured in perfect sevens. A book where these seven churches really are representative of the one unified body of Christ in the world. We're reading a book where later, if you keep reading, the, the Lamb of God will stand with seven eyes and with seven horns and and he will open a scroll with seven seals, and that will set in motion seven angels who blow seven trumpets, who pour out seven bowls of God's wrath. The idea here through seven is completeness. It's a symbolic perfection. It's an ultimate consummation. And so this is not speaking in verse 1 where it says the seven spirits of God. We ought not to think that there is the Father and the Son and, and maybe seven other spirits running around. This is a symbolic picture of the one Holy Spirit. 
the Spirit and the perfection of His power and the perfection of His ability. This is the language back in chapter 1, verse 4. Take a look across the page if you've got an ESV. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. That is Trinitarian language. The one who is and was and is to come on the throne, the seven spirits before him, and Jesus, the faithful witness. That is where grace and peace come from. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a symbolic representation of the perfection and the fullness of the Spirit. So do you see what he's saying? He says, I am the one with the fullness of the churches, and I am the one with the fullness of the Spirit, and I am the one who is able to unite the two. Because what dead people need is not an alarm clock. They need a resurrection. And he says, when I put the Spirit and the churches together, I can call, and dead men and women come to life. There is a story that illustrates this perfectly in Luke chapter 7. Jesus, with his disciples, is outside of a small city called Nain. And there's a funeral procession coming out of the city. They're carrying a young man, the only son of his mother, and his mother is a widow. And there is mourning, and there is lamentation, and they're taking him out to be buried. It says that Jesus had compassion. And he drew near, and the first thing he did is that he spoke to the mother and he comforted her. You say, if this is anybody else but Jesus, that's insulting. And he tells her, don't cry, your son is dead. But then he draws near to where the funeral buyer is. He draws near and he speaks. That's all he does. Jesus says, Luke chapter 7, verse 14, Young man, I say to you, arise. And life came to a lifeless body. Not because he touched him. Not because he performed CPR. He didn't mix mud and apply it in some place. They didn't wash the body in the Jordan River some seven times. The Lord spoke. And life came to a lifeless body the same way he stood outside of the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Because the voice of Jesus, when he speaks to his people and he says, wake up and strengthen and remember and hear and keep and repent, Jesus' words are able to pass beyond the grave where death and decay have already set in. Jesus raises the dead to life simply by calling them. And the question today is, do you hear him? It may be that there are some here who are still dead, really dead in their sins and their trespasses, and they have no life, they have no hope, they have no righteousness. Do you hear him calling? Wake up. Listen. Repent. Believe. Receive a new garment and a new life and blessing in his name. But then there are many more here, I bet, who are alive. And yet we find it all too easy to be dull of hearing. 
All too easy to slumber when you should be watching. All too easy to pursue your own righteousness through spiritual busyness, and you're exhausted of it all. Many here who are alive and find it all too easy to forget that the only worthiness you can claim is the one that he gives to you. And the question is, do you hear him? The voice that raises the dead is speaking. Wake up, remember, repent, and rejoice. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, our God, we thank you for this word that you have given. Thank you that you are the one who is worthy of blessing and honor and glory and power because you are the one who has conquered, the one who is steadfast and firm and faithful to the end to take upon yourself the sins of all your people and to be a ransom for all those elect that you are drawing to yourself to make them a kingdom and a priest to our God forever and ever. Thank you that you are the shepherd, the lamb who is the shepherd who sheds your blood so that our garments might be washed white so that we may follow you and walk with you and be kept by you. Thank you for the security that we find in your word. Thank you much more for the security that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that if there are any here who are dead, you would awaken them. We pray that for those of us who find ourselves often slumbering, you would rouse us. For those who are exhausted, you would feed us and care for us. Oh Lord, help us to hear your word. Give us a name that is worthy of you. Give us a discontent with a reputation before men. And show us the way that you keep us by your name and by your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. come now to a table that proclaims the only one who is truly worthy. Jesus Christ, who was born in the lowliest state, a human birth, uh, though he was without sin and fully God, took upon himself a human body. It was able to be broken and crushed. He had blood that was able to be poured out. And he lived and fulfilled all God's law and all God's commandments perfectly. And he gave himself upon the cross, that body to be broken and that blood to be poured out as a sacrifice for all those who have no worthiness of their own.